Radioland Podcastville and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. This week, we're going to be talking about why you have no recollection of who Mary Brunden is, and yet you wear Jane Austen pajamas. The subject is literary immortality. Wolf Hall, a story for all platforms. Did you like my Man for All Seasons reference? Because that is about Henry VIII as well. Author Hilary Mantel wrote Wolf Hall. It is not only a novel, it is a BBC spectacular and now a Broadway play. Broadway baby Lori Weiner is going to bring us a dispatch from her recent three-week trip to New York City to see plays. And I'm going to sing it, actually. Marit Orlis from the Los Angeles Times is here to discuss the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. LATFOB. LATFOB, which will be taking place on the USC campus this weekend. Mary Brunton. Does that name ring a bell, Tom? Mary Brunton. <laughs> Tom's doing his Marcel Marceau impression. I'll start again. Tom, Mary Brunton. Does yes. that name? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You, no. you, do, you do have the timing of a Polish comedian. Okay, forget. Withdrawn. Lori, Mary Brunton. Well, I think that Jane Austen and her contemporary Mary Brunton are an illustrative case of how Hart's and Johnson's theories of immortality play out, Seth. Okay, I just reading that, I've never heard of Mary Brunton. You are a show-off. I Jerry, am. Mary Brunton. Does the name ring a bell? She was a contemporary of that was, Jane. That was a no for Jane. Thank you. She was a contemporary of Jane Austen's, uh, which would put her in the first half of the 19th century, every bit as popular as Jane Austen. But Mark Twain, we, we've heard of Mark Twain. Yes, yes, we have. Literary immortality is the topic. What makes one writer last through the centuries and another one be forgotten 50 years later. Where does literary immortality come from? What's what's the the root? Uh, Homer. What, what? Yeah, because Homer wasn't the only guy spinning yarns in ancient Greece. Why has Homer come down through the ages? Why do we remember Homer? Well, there are a lot of accidents involved in this kind of thing, right? I just read a piece on Sappho. One of the th- pieces that kept Sappho alive was a piece that was used as an illustration of vowel sequence in poetry. And we know about Sappho in part because this guy thought she handled her vowels really well. I think you're talking about the mystery of art and the mystery of greatness. And I do think that, as with music, there is a bit of a sell-by date in that most people can only go as far back as Shakespeare. I mean, some people go to Chaucer, some people go to Homer. But, you know, as with music, nobody listens to music from the 11th century anymore. But if uh, the article you're referring to about Sappho, that speaks to the role of the academy in all this. And Tom, as a, as a professor, you're uniquely qualified to comment on that. So for instance, let's take Melville's reputation, mm-hmm. right? Melville was completely forgotten into the, you know, let's say 1910s. Nobody knew who he was. Moby then, Dick sold 3,000 copies. Uh, you know, in entirety of Melville's life, right? Including the 30 years after it was published. 40 years after it was published, before he died? At any rate, mm-hmm. it was, yeah. uh, right? And so he's he's largely forgotten. And then they find Billy Budd in uh, Locker in somebody's attic. 
And Billy Budd gets rediscovered by academics, yes, and excited people are excited about Was it. Was Billy Budd published posthumously? Never, yeah, published in 1925, mm-hmm. 1927, something like that. I mean, it was. Uh, that's a perfect case in which a re-examination of an author makes them important in a way that they weren't in their own lifetime. This is often an article that William Giraldi wrote in The New Republic, mm-hmm. right? And Giraldi is somebody who's written for us a, a number of times. He's, I think he's a really great and, and kind of important critic of our day. And he is talking about Hemingway and that kind of fame. And that's a different phenomenon than, you know, rediscovering a lost classic. What's interesting about the Hemingway phenomenon is in, in many ways, he's the first example of what we're seeing now. It's a very modern kind of fame that he exploited for his career and ultimately suffered from, I think. There's also a different kind of, it's not fame, it's meaning thing going on. The best example, of course, is Van Gogh, who fetches more for a painting than any other artist living or dead, and could not hardly sell a painting in his lifetime. I heard Philip Glass being interviewed, and he was talking about his early days. None of the critics understood what he was doing at all. People would throw fruit at him on the stage because they were actually insulted by his music. They felt that that he was making fun of them. Yeah, I've been there. At the same time, he knew a lot of other young composers who weren't composing very much because they had jobs, because they felt they needed a paycheck, because they might one day have a family. He never felt that. He had no problem with being broke, but he had, I think, the sense of his own immortality before he was famous if he followed this thing that he was feeling. This is probably a good time to confess I once threw an egg salad sandwich at Philip Glass. But he was hungry and, and he thanked you. And I've been carrying around that secret <laughs> shame for years now. Um, it's an interesting game to think about who among us... Who's going to be immortal? Who's I think being I think exalted? Gonna, I think it's going to be you, Seth. I think yeah, you're... clearly. I think it's me. Um, but, but will, I think it's Jerry. Will, will Philip Glass, uh, 100 years from now, loom as importantly as he does today? And as you say, in music, it is 400 years, so I think we can logically ask that question. And I, if I had to put money, I would, I would probably say yes, because he's been so influential, really, because I he does not stand alone. He influenced many, many composers who've appeared on the scene since then. Right. A lot of the stuff that Giraldi talks about in this piece, you know, is very just funny, right? When Norman Mailer said to Gore Vidal, you know, we're, we're both going to have cults in the future. Let me throw this out, yeah. too. Gore Vidal, is anybody going to be reading? Never mind. Will anybody know who Gore Vidal is in 50 years? Well, he was obsessed with immortality. That's yes. why I think it's particularly I think that's, to discuss. Exactly. I think that that's a problem for writers, that if they are obsessed with immortality, which I'm, I'm not saying that Philip Glass was, I'm saying he had a sense of a possibility of it. But I think if you're writing for immortality, and I know there's 10,000 good quotes on this, you're going to kill yourself. So Gore Vidal, what's, what do you guys think? Well, Vidal said a cult would be good for you, Norman Mailer. Right. Mailer suggested this. And he said, I, I want a religion. Of course. Right? And will he get it? No. He won't get it. Mailer has really gone out of public... Con- Nobody talks about Mailer mm-hmm. anymore. I wonder if, if Mailer's uh, degree of macho will ultimately doom him to the, the ash heap. Once you commit crimes against the sensibility of your audience, you're in trouble. And now, academics are important, not because what they have to say about any particular text is important, but because they assign texts in their classes, right? And so the, the canon becomes what people read in their college literature classes. And if somebody falls off of that list, like William Dean Howells, right. gone Bret completely, Hart. right? Bret Hart, gone completely. Even 
50 years ago, both of those guys were on college literary syllabi, right? Then now they're both gone, and therefore they're, they're dead. Fitzgerald went out of print at a certain point, and The Great Gatsby in particular, I'm thinking, went out of print. Tom, what brought The Great Gatsby, which many people now consider the greatest American novel of the 20th century, back from obscurity to the esteem in which we hold it today? Well, all of the stuff that we consider to be the great literature in, in English is an effect in part of the new criticism coming through the American university. The idea that we are not any longer interested in setting an author in their historical context. We're interested in the text itself. And this is a, a result, critics have said, this is the result of the 1960s boom in American universities, the huge construction of hundreds of new universities around the country, and you needed to have a way to teach literature that didn't require you to have studied you know, Greek and Latin in your, in your prep school, right? And that kind of democratization of literary study those guys found text, almost all guys, right? There were more women in English departments in 1911 than there were in 1950. They found all of the texts which you could put in front of a class of uneducated kids and talk about the beauty of a, of a particular text. The Great Gatsby is a perfect text for that. It's just, you don't need to know anything. You, you don't need to have any background. You don't have to know the history of literature. You certainly don't know, need to know any classics. You don't have to have read the Fairy Queen, right, to understand it. So they, those texts were are the texts that became the canon starting in the 1960s. And would Hemingway die twice if he knew that Fitzgerald is the author that people care about today? Well, Hemingway, of course, w benefited from this regime because especially the stories were perfect for this kind of new critical approach. For a time. Yeah, for a time. And then, of course, he was he was victim to his own sexism. Right? He committed crimes against the sensibility of his audience. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 on your FM dial. Hilary Mantel's novel, Wolf Hall, has taken over all forms of media in the last year. Two novels, a BBC production that's being aired now, and a two-headed play in New York City. Briefly, before we jump into why it's such a phenomenon, let's talk about exactly what it is. Let me give you a prompt, Henry VIII. Okay, Henry VIII is probably <laughs> one of the best-known stories in history. Maybe Marie Antoinette is better known and sexier, but it's second or third. Anyway, she's really telling the story of the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn, which was Henry's second wife, who was beheaded, and whose daughter became Queen Elizabeth, Shakespeare's patron. The thing about Wolf Hall is that it tells a intimate love story with a life and death consequences, and it tells a very big story about a corrupt system and how anyone who enters into this system, even the best possible human being, in this case Thomas Cromwell, will become corrupted and destroyed by it. It tells those two stories at once, and it has that quality of absolute inevitability. You see what's coming, you can't stop it, it's like a train, and you still want to stop it. Why is it connecting on such a deep level with people, the story about the seduction of Thomas Cromwell? It has to do with many things, one of which is the role of women when women have no actual power, and the power that they can gain is by their sexuality and their desirability, and what happens when they lose it in a system in which they have no actual power. Of course, the ironic thing is that 
the reason that Henry wed so many times was because he wanted a son. As an heir, he believed that a woman could not rule England. Of course, the irony is that Elizabeth, his daughter by Anne Boleyn, who he killed, went on to rule England. Do you think that made Christmas awkward? The fact that <laughs> well, you know, executed. It's, obviously, it's interesting because a guy gets to marry eight women and kill them off when he gets tired of. Them. I mean, that's. A, I mean, who doesn't fantasize about that? I know. I'm just saying. I hate to be the one to say it. Well, it's the elephant in the room. But please. But right before Wolf Hall becomes famous, we have the Tudors on Showtime, which is hilarious. It's so bad, especially when compared to Wolf Hall, because Hilary Mantel's belief is that history is so interesting and real life is so interesting that to make shit up is just stupid. And I think we've all felt this before if you read a novel about the Holocaust and somebody makes up some torture that a Nazi, it's like, really, you had to make up something? There's, it's not all there? Anyway, in the Tudors, the sexuality is so 20th century that it's hilarious. Like Henry's getting blobs and, you know, I'm not saying people didn't have sex and didn't have oral sex, but they certainly I did not have not it. Saying that, yeah. But they didn't have it in the way that is depicted, like as if he was at Studio 54, you know, doing cocaine and having blobs by multiple women. It just was ridiculous. What's your historical evidence for that? I want to that know. No Existed I didn't prior say to, no. No, I know. Yeah. And to the radio audience, uh, I want to apologize for all the beeps, which are so Sorry. annoying. Yeah. It's always me, isn't it? <laughs> it so, so when in in Hollywood, when you're pitching something set in a historical period, you'll be asked, "Why now? Why are you telling the story now?" Well, I think it's part of what Laurie was saying earlier about that this is an incredibly corrupt system that corrupts everybody in it. That is both contemporary for us, and it lets us off the hook somehow. Thomas Cromwell, historically, is usually the villain in this story, and Hilary Mantel has made him the hero, and why now? That's interesting, because Thomas Cromwell is someone who made himself entirely. He came from nothing. His father beat the living crap out of him. He had to go away to survive. He learned every skill possible while traveling through Italy and France. Entirely self-made man, entirely self-taught. And there's something very appealing about that right now. Do you yeah. feel that's a particularly contemporary phenomenon? What you just described in Cromwell? I think it's part of what we value in society right now. And, and so that's part of why it's such an appealing story. Right. And the idea of Thomas More in Man for All Seasons is the hero because he's a man of conscience who stands up to power, right? And Cromwell is the hero in Wolf Hall because he's a man coming from nowhere who stands up against the power in order to make himself successful. Right? That's, that's well, that's, odd. That is odd, and, and it's the turning point in the novel, because he comes to us as a great hero. We, we He's kind, he's just, he's compassionate, but we see him become corrupted by the system step by step. How'd the audience respond to the play? They loved it. It's interesting. I thought that the play was better, more successful than the PBS version for two reasons. A, PBS has Mark Rylance and Damian Lewis starring, and I think they were very much aware of the star power and the sexiness of those two stars. Some people consider Mark Rylance the best actor alive right now. He's primarily a stage actor, and this will be an American audience's first look at him for a lot of people. And some people consider Damian Lewis the guy from Homeland. Yes, Yeah. Okay. right. It's a cash cow, right? I mean, everybody's going to watch that. But they inevitably corrupt the novel because they have these two stars, 
and they rely a lot on close-ups of Mark Rylance and his eyes and his face. Whereas the stage version, you see the structure, you see the big picture much better. A story is a story, and a good one will work in any number of iterations. And I have been resistant to reading the book because I'm not a consumer of historical fiction, but I am seeing the play in New York. And I'm curious, Laurie, have we seen the last of Hilary Mantel's exploitation of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and Thomas Cromwell, or will this be a pop-up book? We'll find out next year when the third volume of this trilogy comes out. And of course it will. It'll never go away, I think. And and to conclude on uh, advice to young writers, always consider a guillotine. (laughs) One of the things I miss most about no longer living in Manhattan is the easy access to really great theater. Lori, you were just there for a week and saw how many plays? I saw a dozen plays. I was there for three weeks. Three weeks, sorry. Um, And uh, it was heaven. Top three. Fun Home, the most brilliant musical, I'll say since Assassins. We're going to get get back to that in a second. Okay. Two and three. Uh, Wolf Hall, one and two. No kidding. Yeah, I'd have to say. So, Fun Home, Alison Bechtel, talk a moment about the graphic novel that it's based on and who Alison Bechtel is. Alison Bechtel won the Genius Grant, the MacArthur Award, last year. I don't think it's a coincidence that she won this award 10 years after she wrote the graphic novel, but right after the musical was made. The musical is such a great adaptation because it takes a great book and it makes it into a great musical. The emotional high points of the musical are mere sides in the novel. So it really adapts it. What's the book about? It's about a young woman growing up in a household where her father is a closeted gay man and is unhappy, but a very bright man and is kind of trying to be a good father. And then when she goes away to college, she discovers that she's a lesbian and just a few short weeks after that, her father commits suicide. That's the story. And you know that this happens early on, and then you see played out why and how that happened. Lisa Cronin, the musical, Lisa, Lisa Cronin, Cronin is the... adapted the musical, she wrote the lyrics in the book, made the narrator into three different ages. You have an 11-year-old girl, you have an 18-year-old girl, and you have a 43-year-old woman. 43 was how old her father was when he committed suicide. And we did say that this is an autobiography, right? I mean, this is yes. this is Alison Bechdel's story, and so she's kind of on stage as a grown woman at her pretty much her current age, who is uh, a cartoonist, as a, a graphic novelist, as she is. And the other characters, her younger selves, are on stage, sometimes at exactly at the same time. It's one of these things that theater can do really well, and that's, you know, you can't do in film. You can't, it never happens in fiction because things don't happen simultaneously it's, in fiction. It's an incredibly complex storytelling device. Yeah. Um, There's a great history in the theater of confessional gay storytelling that has resonated deeply with straight audiences. I'm thinking 30 years ago when Harvey Firestein was on Broadway with a trilogy of plays called Torch Song Trilogy. Do you think Fun Home is going to resonate to the degree that Harvey Firestein's play did? It's such a good question because it's a woman. I think it has that working against it. Alison Bechdel at 43 and this play is, is kind of a butch lesbian. Uh, Will P. 
people embrace this. I think it's so good that they will, but I do think it has a mountain to climb, and it certainly will be the first musical ever about a you know so-called Butch Dyke. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 on your FM dial. For the past 20 years, the Los Angeles Times has staged one of the biggest and best book festivals in the world. Uh, It's coming up the week of the 18th and 19th of April. Joining us today is one of the organizers, Merit Orlis from the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Merit. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to start us off by asking, the festival is such a vast three-ring circus. When you get together with the organizers and begin to plan, where do you start? Well, we usually start by looking at the past and the future, if that makes sense. We look at the previous year's festivals, what was so great about them, why do people come, why do people like being involved, what can we do to replicate that without it just being boring, and where do we want it to go, what's new, what's exciting, what can we do differently so that the people who have come for 20 years will always continue to find something new. Well, let's start with the new. What's the new thing for this year? There are several new things. We have added a travel area at the festival. So um, the Festival of Books, while books are its core, it expands into a lot of different arts and culture, and travel is a huge cultural area. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a great guy who uh, has a project called the Detour Project that does location-focused audio walks, and he's going to be talking about that. So Wait, 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 wait. What's an audio walk? Like if you go to a different city, a city you don't know, and you mm-hmm. want to download a walking tour or oh, something like that. that. We also on the Travel Smart stage have the TSA Chorus doing some performing <laughs> for us. The TSA, they are some great people and they get a bad rap. And they have a bunch of members, particularly those who work at LAX that have a chorus. They are fantastic. I hope to see that woman that patted me down the other day because <laughs> she was really cute. <laughs> there you go. So there's that. There's also... We've recently announced a partnership with Jose Antonio Vargas called Emerging Us that is about sort of what is identity in America. Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He very famously ended up writing an op-ed about being an undocumented Mm -hmm. citizen here in the U.S. And he and the L.A. Times are working together on this new Emerging Us project. So there are a lot of panels, both that Jose is helping us put on, but also that we're doing as large to launch that, as well as things that are California-focused because we relaunched our California section, and that's been a big initiative for us. Mm -hmm. I have a question about your panels, because one of the great things about the book fair is the panels. Every author that's alive that you want to hear talk, except for maybe Philip Roth, you know, (laughs) is there. And me, I look to see what authors I want to hear talk, and then what the panel is about is kind of second for me. But I'm wondering when you put it together, is it you want to hear these people together and then you find the topic? Or do you find the topic and then put the people together? It's a little bit of both. Sometimes we say this is a really important topic to talk about right now. And who should we get to talk about that? Or who has a book about that, that would really add an interesting voice to that conversation. And sometimes it's the entire opposite. We invite a lot of people. We also receive an 
uncountable number of submissions of people who want to be part of the festival. And sometimes we're like, we know we want this person. This book sounds great. They're a great writer. We have no idea what we're going to do with them. So we wait till we have sort of this large plethora of people and we go, these people have a really interesting theme that would go well together and sort of come up with it on the back end. So it works both ways. You know, as somebody who's been part of it now for five or six uh, years, I've always been amazed because I get my a kind of assignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find out I'm, I'm on a panel with these three or four other people and the panel has a title and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And the title is vague enough yes, that is. we can all figure <laughs> out what we want to do. It's it's directed, right? It's right. not like it's just random words. <laughs> no, it's related to who we Mostly. are and we can, we, can, we can tell that it's related to who we are are this random collection of people on the stage. And then we sit down and we figure out, well, how are we going to respond to this title? And it's an interesting process. I mean, it, it works. What's your title this year? What is our title this year? Oh, God. Um, there are over 100 panels, and I don't know oh, yours that, off the top of my head. Shocking. Oh, that is I'm shocking. Very I, thought sorry. It, I thought it was the most important panel on the but apparently <laughs> it, it not. Tom, is. Do, you, do you actually not remember the title? I'm going to yeah. look it up right now. But it's interesting you talking about that because the title is actually often one of the last pieces of the puzzle for us is, you know, we know what the topic is. We know why we've put people together. But when we sit in these meetings with these spreadsheets of authors and books and synopses of books and all of this kind of stuff, often we're like, fiction two. And then when we get fiction three, fiction four, that's what we're looking Uh at. And then we get to, oh, we have to tell people what they're doing. We can't call it fiction three anymore. And we're like, okay, why did we put these people together again? And then we sort of figure out the title from there. My panel is called Publishing the Big Picture. Yes. That leaves a lot of room. A lot of room. A lot of room, right? And we do that on purpose because there are people coming at all of our panels from different angles and we want the moderator ultimately is going to be the one who's probably closest to all of the people who are on the project because they're going to be the one who has most recently read all of their projects or in looked into their expertise and how they relate to one another and we want to offer that moderator the leeway to explore those in the directions they find interesting and not just be so focused and forced into a niche that you know, in our conversation about anything can get boring. So if you leave it wide, it allows for a lot of exploration. Right. And of course, there's also the, always those people like, um, I think I was on a panel, I think once with Bob Shear. And of course, Bob always on whatever panel he's on, he says, oh, well, that's interesting. But what I want to talk about is, <laughs> <laughs> is X. And then he talks about it, right? And right. so there's, there's, there's leeway and then there's extra leeway. But, but I think that pretty much describes every panel that I've ever seen. What I love about the artfulness of the way you guys choose the titles is they're really just prompts because here's an idea. Now go. You've moved from uh, UCLA to USC. Yes. And I think that it was a great move. And I think it's in part because the crowd is a little different. It is. And people come from all walks of life, from all communities, from all kinds of reading commitments. And it's really, it's, it's exciting at that level too. It's, a, it's something that uh, you don't find in Los Angeles very much and are, are very kind of segregated, culturally They come segregated. from the East. Exactly. Yeah, come from the no, East it's, and the South and it's, the, uh, everywhere. It's definitely, our audience has both increased quantity-wise and the diversity has increased. And also to convey to our listeners who've never been, uh, I'll let you say the number, there quite a lot of people come. How many people do you expect this weekend? Over 150,000 people. Well... 
that is a, it's a city in itself, it which is, is great. It is. And, you know, one of the other great things about being located at USC is it is so centrally located, so it's easy for more people to get to. It's also very easy to get to on public transportation right. for everyone in L.A. that's freaking out about the traffic of 150,000 people. There's a metro line right there at the campus. You can also take the metro to Union Station, and we have shuttles throughout the weekend that take you from Union Station to oh, no kidding. Okay. the right. festival. We so, so it is a it is a very very easy event to get to even if you if and if you don't want to deal with the traffic you don't have to who's the most difficult author you've ever had to deal with <laughs> not answering <laughs> seth greenland <laughs> seth greenland is the answer to a lot of questions he, today yeah. everyone who is in town this weekend who loves books should be at the uh, los angeles times book festival hashtag book fest people at usc <laughs> this saturday and sunday tom plugola when's your panel on Saturday at 3 o'clock in the Salvatore Computer Science Center, 101. Mine is 12.30 on Sunday. I don't know where, but uh, Merritt's so that means take you, me there, I assume. Yes. That, that means you have to come to my panel. And I you will. have to go to his panel. And uh, Does that mean that, too? Yeah, it's a mess. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks to Marit Orlis from the Los Angeles Times. I'd like to thank the generous support of the Goldhirsch Foundation, our excellent producer slash engineer, Jerry Gorin. You can find us on the web, lareviewofbooks.org. That's all for now, but we will see you next week.